Have you found yourself to be weary and worn out at the end of the year? Uh, War and death still looms large over our lives. COVID is still a cause for concern. And then maybe, um, maybe school is always a struggle. College is coming up quickly and young adulthood is on the horizon. Maybe your relationships need some work. Maybe uh, you're fighting with your friends. Maybe there's brokenness in your home and you lost your sense of belonging. Uh, It's easy to be weary and worn out. Uh, Maybe your Christian life has been feeling a little bit stale, a little bit stagnant. Maybe you've been feeling a little bit dry. Um, Maybe you feel far away from God. And I don't mean to be a downer, but I think there is a certain sense of weariness that comes at the end of the year and with the winter season. So where can we find hope? Please turn with me now to Matthew 2, 13 to 23. I want you to read it in your Bibles. Matthew is writing to a primarily Jewish Christian audience. These are people who would have known the Old Testament. These are people who are already anticipating a Messiah. Messiah is God's promised deliverer. God's chosen one would be a king who would save Israel and be a blessing to all of the nations. And they, like us, are looking for some hope. Matthew is going to show us how Jesus furthers and fulfills Three Old Testament prophecies. These prophecies are going to confirm Jesus' kingship. Now, prophecies can mean different things. On a basic level, it just means that God is speaking. He's giving a message. But what we really mean about prophecy, and we'll find it to be true of these texts today, is that prophecy means revealing the future. Revealing the future. Notice that I didn't say predicting the future. I said revealing the future. And the reason that I choose not to use the word predict is because predicting, it carries the sense of like guessing or estimating what could happen. But revealing carries the notion of foretelling and informing. So these prophecies that we're going to see today, they reveal God's plan and they confirm Jesus' kingship. He's a ruler who will come to make things right, and he's going to give real rest in this weary world. These prophecies confirm Jesus for who he really is. He's the king of heaven and of earth. It's necessary to know that the Old Testament writers could not clearly see Jesus. They had hints, but the big picture was not fully realized. Today, we can read and see how prophecies apply to God's people, Israel, and they also apply to the person of Jesus. So when I say that Jesus furthers these prophecies, I mean that he not only references and repeats things that happened in Israel's history, but he also broadens and he expands their meaning. And when I say that Jesus fulfills these prophecies, I mean that he not only accomplishes the prophecy, but he fully realizes it. He makes it for what it's all worth. He's the point of all of these prophecies. So God is going to protect his son, Jesus, 
as he furthers and fulfills these prophecies, nothing is going to stop God's plan for salvation. God is sovereign over the perilous Christmas story. Perilous meaning being placed in danger. Now at this point, Jesus, the little Jewish baby, had just been born. Word had already spread that the infant king has arrived. But the current king, King Herod, he's not happy about this. He feels threatened, and he seeks to literally kill the competition. We're going to see that Jesus' family, Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus, they're always on the run. They're always in some sort of danger. We often leave out this part of the Christmas story. Uh, We think that it stops at the birth of Christ, but the narrative continues. The Christmas story pushes forward, and it's filled with fright, and it's dark with danger. Suffering is all over the Christmas story. Mary and Joseph are worn out, and they're weary, but they have hope. We're going to read and see three prophecies Jesus furthers and fulfills to confirm his kingship, giving hope that God has come to make things right and give real rest. He is the good and true king who has come to save God's people. Our first prophecy that Jesus furthers and fulfills is that he is called out of Egypt. Our first prophecy is that Jesus is called out of Egypt. Let's read this together. It says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt... I called my son. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. This would have been a surprise, but it would not have been necessarily new to Joseph. God had spoken to Joseph before when he was first told to take Mary as his wife and that she would give birth to baby Jesus. So Joseph, he already knows he better pay attention and he hears that he's in danger. Herod the Great the Roman-appointed ruler of Judea has heard the news, and he's on a mission to search and destroy the newborn king. So Joseph must flee to Egypt, and he must remain there so he can be safe. So Joseph, he obeys. He gets up, and he takes Mary and Jesus on a journey to Egypt by night. Now, Egypt was about 90 miles from Bethlehem. They would be safe, far away from Herod, as they would be outside of his jurisdiction. When Joseph and his young family fled to Egypt, it was already a haven for Jewish people. It was already a refuge for the Jews. Now, the Bible says that they did remain there, staying safe until the death of Herod. Matthew is clear about the purpose, about why he had to go. He's clear about the entire purpose of it all. And this is why. He says it was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. He cites Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. This passage in Hosea, it's beautiful. This is God talking. 
And God likens himself as a father to the nation of Israel. They were God's people, and God loved them. This is endearing, affectionate language. God loved his people when they were young, small, and weak, and insignificant. Israel had always been an underdog. Do you remember the Exodus story? The Exodus story in the Old Testament? Israel had been enslaved in Egypt, and Pharaoh was a cruel king. God delivered his people from danger, leading them through the Red Sea, and then settling beneath Mount Sinai. God called Israel out of captivity, and it's interesting because God calls Israel his son. In this way, Israel is a type of Jesus. This prophecy is a type prophecy. That's the name of it, a type prophecy. It's called a typological prophecy. And so you can see how Jesus furthers and fulfills the prophecy because he is both a literal son of Israel, he's, he's Jewish, and he's also the son of God. It's purposeful and it's planned for God to show that Jesus is the Savior King. Before we move on, let's consider the character of Joseph. Imagine yourself in his situation. He's a new father. He wasn't really planning to be a father. God told him, you're going to be a father. You're going to adopt this baby boy as your own. Jesus is his first child, so he has no experience with taking care of a baby. He's anxious about raising a baby on his own. He's anxious about caring for his family. And he's dealing with the fallout of Mary supposedly being pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And so now he's told in a dream that he's in jeopardy. He's in danger. They're in serious trouble. They need to flee and they need to become fugitives. This is after having already traveled to Bethlehem. So they're already tired. And then they need to get up and go out again. And they need to do it with haste. There's no time to ask questions. There's no time to draw up a plan. This is a life or death decision. Joseph has God's word. And that's enough. He just needs to trust and obey. Do you cherish the word of God? God doesn't speak to us through dreams or through angels. We have God's word. We have the Bible. It's God's word breathed out and written down. It's readable. It's reliable. It's understandable. It's better than bread. It's more precious than gold. It's sweeter than honey. I want to challenge you to read the Bible during your winter break. You can even increase the amount of quiet time that you have of God. Find wisdom in Proverbs. Study the Psalms. Go through one of the Gospels. Look through Paul's letters. Before you know it, your winter break will be over. And you will have no excuse for not having spent time with God. Don't drift your days away. Push forward in your faith by reading the Bible. God's word is a gift to us. And it was definitely a gift to Joseph when God spoke to him. He didn't ignore it. He obeyed. And he fled to Egypt. Do you have the obedient heart of Joseph? When God makes something clear, do you follow his commands? Or do you say no and you, you ask questions and you try to make excuses and you question his motives? 
Let me give you some clear commands from Scripture right now. Honor your father and mother. Do good to those who hate you. Abstain and flee from sexual immorality. Love your enemies. You might get tired from obeying these commands. And the world is definitely going to make things hard for you if you try to obey God. It's going to be difficult. But God never said that your Christian life would be easy. He never said that. He never said that you would be safe in this world. He did say, however, that we are not to fear. God is with us and he will sustain us. We can look to the trusting tenacity of Jesus who prayed for the bitter cup to be taken from him, but nevertheless said in perfect obedience, not my will, but yours be done. And this is what Jesus said. He said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's in Luke 22, verse 42. Our first prophecy that Jesus furthers and fulfills is that he is called out of Egypt. The son of Israel is the son of God. This is proof that he is the good and true king who came to save God's people. Our second prophecy that Jesus furthers and fulfills is that he is born in the midst of murder. He's born in the midst of murder. Remember in our story, children are being killed by Herod. Let's read that again. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Herod the Great he was the Roman-appointed ruler of Judea. Can you recall Kevin's sermon from last week? Before the wise men went to, to find baby Jesus, they had first met with Herod. Herod wanted them to return from their trip to tell them where Jesus could be found. But the wise men, they refused to return to Herod. They said, hey, we're not going to give this information to Herod. We're going to keep baby Jesus safe. And when Herod, when he finds out, that he was tricked by the wise men, what he does in response to this is ridiculous. He becomes furious. He becomes enraged. Uh, he gets angry, and he's out of control. In jealous paranoia, he orders all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years or younger to be killed, to be slayed, to be slaughtered. This is a mass killing across the land. It's a tragedy. And what this does is it actually furthers and fulfills this prophecy from Jeremiah 31.15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now Ramah is a town five miles north of Jerusalem, so it's pretty close. This town would have had special significance for the Jewish people. What's important about this town is that it's important in Israel's history. It would have been one of the first cities passed during the Jewish exile. 
Do you remember how I said that Israel had always been an underdog? In Israel's history, they were exiled. Okay, After they escaped from Egypt, they were overtaken and they were forced out of their homeland. Israel had split into the northern and into the southern kingdoms during this exile. And then they would be forced having to leave their homes. Now, Ramah, it was a town that was right in the middle of the north and the south. And so you have these Jewish exiles. They're being forced out of their land. They would meet in the middle so they could all leave together. It was the town for their deportation. Now, the northern kingdom would be deported to Assyria, and the southern kingdom would be deported to Babylon. And so when they're being deported, when they're leaving their homes, you hear all this crying, you hear lamentation and bitter weeping coming out of the dark, depressing town of Ramah. It's said to be from Rachel weeping for her children. Who is Rachel? If you remember the Old Testament, Rachel is the wife of Jacob. Jacob loved Rachel more than her sister Leah. He worked for 14 years in order to marry Rachel. Rachel would eventually give birth to Joseph, who is associated with the northern kingdom. And Rachel would also give birth to Benjamin, who is associated with the southern kingdom. And so the point that we're making when we talk about Ramah and we're talking about Rachel is that she's crying. She's the mother over all of Israel, and she's crying because her children, both from the north and the south, are being deported. They're being pulled out of their homes. They're suffering during their exile. Think of the conditions that the children would have had to endure. There would have been death all around. Broken homes, broken families, Ramah. It was a war zone. And there's a place in Bethlehem where Rachel is said to be buried. It's Rachel's tomb. And so in the same city where Herod was slaughtering these children, Rachel's actually buried there. And again, she can be said to be crying for her children. Uh, This is called a double fulfillment prophecy or a near and far prophecy. There are different meanings that you can get from this prophecy, and they occur in different spaces and times in history. You can see how Jesus furthers and fulfills this prophecy because he's born during this hauntingly similar historical event where Jewish babies are being killed. Jesus is born in the midst of murder. Israel would not stay in exile forever. Uh, This dark period in Israel's history, it would eventually come to an end, and they still had hope. And so in the same way, Jesus came to end our spiritual exile. He came to bring us back to God. It's purposeful, and it's planned for God to show that Jesus is the Savior King. Let's consider the character of Herod. Herod was a man fueled by jealousy, committing mass murder to keep his position of power. He was arrogant, he was prideful, and he was insecure. Now, Herod was also known to be called King of the Jews. And we know Jesus. Jesus is the real King of the Jews. But Herod, he was a king, and he wanted to keep things that way. He didn't like people taking his title. He was also called Herod the Great. He wanted to be great in the eyes of man. He was stubborn and stiff-necked. He was a man marked by pride. Do you have the jealous, prideful heart of Herod? 
Do you refuse to give up the throne of your life and of your heart to the true and rightful King Jesus? While you might claim to be a Christian, maybe you've made yourself an idol by putting yourself before God. Are there areas in your life that you refuse to give over to God? Is there something in your life that is causing you to sin? Is there a relationship in your life that needs to be reconciled? If you think about our passage today, Jesus, the baby, he didn't do anything yet. He's just a baby. He's just a child. But Herod feels threatened because of who Jesus is. He's the king. Jesus is God, and he is the rightful king over your life as well. Do not wait to submit to him. Don't think that, oh, Jesus, he doesn't really do anything for me now, so um, I don't need to do anything for him. No, God is being patient with you right now. He has shown you mercy, and he will return, not as a baby, but as a conquering king. Humble yourself and come to him now. Uh, maybe you're okay with God, but your pride is pointed at other people. Can you rejoice when others get recognition? Or do you feel threatened when others are doing well? The world will tell you that you always have to be winning. Uh, the truth is that you don't have to live your life in constant competition. You don't have to keep comparing yourself with others. The world tells you to work relentlessly, clawing at others and climbing up ladders for position and power. Even in the church, we ask, oh, who gets to sit at the right hand of Jesus? Who gets to be prominent in the church? You know, God never said that his people would be powerful in this world. God never promised us positions of power and authority in this world. You can look at the gracious and the gentle heart of Jesus Find your rest and stand still on the solid rock. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Our second prophecy that Jesus furthers and fulfills is that he is born in the midst of children being killed. The light of Jesus shines brightly. It illuminates the darkness. And the darkness does not overcome it. This is proof that he is the true king and will save God's people. Our third and final prophecy today that Jesus furthers and fulfills is that he would be called a Nazarene. Our third prophecy today that Jesus furthers and fulfills is that he would be called a Nazarene. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, like all men do, Herod the Great would eventually die. 
Jesus and his family are hiding in Egypt, and the angel of the Lord appears again in a dream to the young father Joseph. The angel tells him to go back to the land of Israel. But Joseph later hears that Archelaus was reigning over Judea. Archelaus was Herod's son, and you can bet that Herod would have told his son, "Hey, look out for this so-called upcoming king of the Jews." Joseph is warned in a dream to withdraw to the district of Galilee. And so he again he obeys and he settles in the city of Nazareth. What is significant about the city of Nazareth?、Uh, the significance about it is that it's not significant; it's insignificant. Nazareth was considered random; it was somewhat obscure. You would think that the king. Would come from somewhere important. You would think that the king would come from maybe somewhere like Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, or maybe you would think that the king would come from Jerusalem, the capital of the southern portion of Israel, and that's also where you would find the temple.、Uh, it would have been a better fit for Jesus to have been associated with his actual birth town of Bethlehem. Also known as the city of David, and you all know that David is Israel's most famous king. But you wouldn't expect Jesus to come from Nazareth. Nazareth was despised; it was rejected, and it was regarded with low esteem. People would say, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" It was held in contempt. Now listen closely. There's actually no single prophecy. There's no single specific prophecy that correlates Jesus coming from Nazareth, but if you have ears to hear, you can find evidence of it that makes reference to it, that refers to it, and that speaks to it in a general sense,、uh, even though it's not recorded word for word. Look at what this says in Isaiah: He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not.、Uh, these are prophecies that are not widely known, and they're not wholly recorded, but their footprints are found throughout the entire Bible. And you can see how Jesus furthers and fulfills this prophecy that the Savior would find his childhood home in the insignificant city of Nazareth. It's purposeful and planned for God to show that Jesus is the Savior King. Let's consider the character of Jesus. We'll start at the beginning. Jesus is God, and He was with God before time began. And they make mankind, knowing fully that man will fall, and they know what it will take to redeem mankind. They know that it will require the blood of Jesus. But God doesn't shed blood, and so Jesus is going to have to become a man. He's going to take on flesh to ransom rebels, and he's going to save sinners. And this is unprecedented. It's incredibly demeaning for Jesus to have to do this. Words can't express how horrible it is that the Son of God would do this. Do you realize? That Jesus did not have to do any of this. Jesus did not have to save us. 
uh, we often wonder at the incarnation because of how incredible it is that God would become a human being. But we would also do good to wonder at how humble it was for God to become a man. God, clothed in glory, becomes man, made of dust. Do you have the humble heart of Jesus? We spend our lives earning degrees and accumulating titles for ourselves. We think that they will give us respect. We think that they'll give us honor. And we compare ourselves in terms of numbers and likes and followers and subscribers. We place our identities in our accomplishments as students, as athletes, and as musicians. When I graduated from high school, uh, I did not feel a sense of accomplishment. Instead, I felt a sense of dread, and I felt a sense of emptiness. I knew that I wanted more. It wasn't good enough for me just to graduate from high school. It wasn't good enough. And I'm going to tell you right now that you will find in your life that you will never have enough. That feeling is going to be there. There's always room for more. And so whether it's respect or honor or accolades or wealth that you're searching for and that you're longing for and that you think that you want, Jesus, Jesus is the only Savior that will satisfy He dares you to disclaim your titles, lay down your arrogant attitudes, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. So instead of climbing higher in the world, dig deeper into Jesus. Jesus did not have to prove himself to anyone. No matter what the world thought about him, he was confident And his will was to please his father. Jesus did not need respect or honor, accolades or wealth in his life on earth. Think about the incredible amount of disrespect that occurred and honestly still occurs to Jesus today. It happens every day. It happens every hour and every second to the king of kings. It's not right. It's messed up. But Jesus, he doesn't call down legions of angels to destroy us. He gives us grace. God never said that his people would be liked or respected in this world. We can look to the loving, humble, gracious heart of Jesus. God is the good that comes out of Nazareth. And so I want to give you some encouragement this morning for those of you who consider yourself a Christian, for those of you who are not ashamed to be called a follower of Christ. Continue to disregard and ignore any derision or shame that comes from believing the Bible and following Christ. Christians, we will always look foolish in the eyes of the world. But like the apostles of the early church, you can rejoice when you're accounted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus whether it comes from the world or from your family or from your friends. We know who Jesus really is. We just need to help them see. Therefore, 
Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. Our third prophecy that Jesus furthers and fulfills is that he would be called a Nazarene. All peoples from every nation would be blessed by this nobody from this nowhere town in God's special way of using fools to shame the wise and the weak to shame the strong. This is proof that Jesus is the true king who will save God's people. Matthew gives us three prophecies furthered and fulfilled in the perilous Christian story. We see the son who is called out of Egypt. The son of Israel is the son of God. We see the children who are killed by Herod. The light of Jesus shines in the darkness of sin, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then finally, we see Christ Jesus comes from his hometown of Nazareth in God's special way of using fools to shame the wise and the weak to shame the strong. All peoples from every nation would be blessed by a nobody from this nowhere town. Three prophecies furthered and fulfilled in the perilous Christmas story proving and confirming that Jesus is the good and true king who came to save God's people. When you stop to think about it, the scope of these prophecies is outstanding. These three prophecies, they're different categories of prophecies. The first is typological. The second is double fulfillment. The third is widely known but not wholly recorded. And even more, these prophecies tie Jesus to the very different locations of Egypt, Ramah, and Nazareth. They are broad and wide in location and time. God was writing an amazing and incredible story. The evidence is overwhelming. These are not coincidences. Jesus is the king. He is the Messiah. He is the chosen one of God who has come to save God's people. God had purpose and planned that Jesus would further and fulfill these three prophecies, proving that he is the good and true king who came to save God's people. Danger and death were all around during this Christmas story, and God showed that he was still in control. Here is our big idea for today. God is sovereign over suffering, and nothing can stop his plan for salvation through Jesus the King. God is sovereign over suffering, and nothing can stop his plan for salvation through Jesus the King. Does it seem strange to you that the Son of God would experience danger, pain, and suffering from the moment of his birth? Does it concern you that even his parents would experience persecution for being connected to him? The gospel is not that you will have health and wealth in this life. The gospel is not that you will be safe and prosperous. What the gospel is, is that your soul can be saved. Sin condemns us to hell. We deserve God's wrath and punishment. But God sent his son, born as a baby, to live a sinless life so that we can claim it as our own. Our guilt and shame was nailed to the cross. Our debt has been paid. Our curse has been canceled. And when Jesus resurrected, when he came back to life, We reap his rewards. Our salvation is secure. Heaven becomes our eternal home. I call you now to die to yourself 
Come out of the grave. Wake up. If you believe all of this, if you trust in Jesus to forgive you of all of your sins, you will be saved. The things of this earth will go strangely dim in the light of the glorious grace of the gospel of Christ. We can count everything as loss. We refer to them as rubbish. And when suffering comes, we share in it because we are becoming like Christ. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Continue in the faith. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when trouble comes, we can remind ourselves, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God is strong. Nothing can separate our Heavenly Father from His children. Please come talk to me or Kevin if you want to trust Jesus today or if God has moved your heart. If you've been following along, I've already made several applications throughout our sermon. So let's keep looking at this big idea, especially the fact that God is sovereign over suffering. And we'll make five really quick applications from this angle. See which ones apply to you and resolve to work them into your life. First, reject the idea that the Christian life is easy. Realize that we're in a spiritual war. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Sin is always crouching at your door. It's seeking to take you down. The world will hate and persecute you just like it did to Jesus. Understand that sanctification is a strenuous process all by itself. We are to go to extremes to eliminate sin in our lives. We are to be constantly dying to ourselves. So reject the idea that the Christian life is easy. Next, remember and trust the promises of God. Listen to these promises. If you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. God sees you in your suffering. For when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. You remain in God's will even when you suffer, for it is better to suffer and to do good. If that should be God's will, then do evil. And you can place your trust in God, saying, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Next, rejoice in suffering. God cares when children are killed. God cares about the pain in this world. God cares about your suffering. We don't always know the purposes and plans of God in our suffering, but we do know that suffering is for showing his glory. The Bible says that if we are children of God, then we are also his heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the link between suffering and glory It's undeniable, uh, but it also means that we can rejoice in it. We can live in this world as sojourners who are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Next, readily share the gospel. We don't just sit still 
in our suffering, we use it as a reason to readily share the gospel. In your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And like Paul, we say, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles and to everyone who believes. Finally, root your hope with God in heaven. If you're experiencing brokenness in your family or in your homes this holiday, root your hope with God in heaven. If sickness and death have cast a dark shadow this season, root your hope with God in heaven. God loves you. Jesus cares for you. The Holy Spirit is with you, and the church is here to help you. And when we are home in heaven, he will wipe away every tear from their eye. Neither there shall be any more crying. There will be no more mourning or pain, for former things have passed away. Death shall be no more. At the end of the year, have you found yourself being weary and worn out by the world? There is hope, and we have seen it. We have seen him in the Christmas story. It's remarkable that the name of Jesus was never explicitly named in our passage today. Did you catch that? He's referred to as the child, but nowhere in our passage today have we been hearing him called Jesus. But as Joseph and Mary carried him along on their journeys, weary and worn out by the world, I believe that they knew his name and found it to be a constant reminder of their hope in God. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name of Jesus, it means the Lord is salvation. It means that God saves. And when we look at Jesus, we get a glimpse of hope. God never said that we would be free from danger He never said that we would be free from the weariness of this world, but he did promise that we would be free from the shackles of our sin and from the despondency of death. When you look in the infant eyes of Jesus with glowing hearts, you see hope. The king of kings laying in a lowly manger in all of our trials. He was born to be our friend. And as you see him grow, as you gaze in the eyes, not as a baby, but as a man, On the cross, you see the love that God has for you. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. God is sovereign over suffering, and nothing can stop his plan for salvation through Jesus the King. We will see the resurrected King face to face one day. You will fall on your face in adoration and praise. I know that your life is not easy. I know that your life is not easy. Even youths grow tired and weary, but for those who hope in the Lord, they will renew their strength. Put your faith in Jesus. You can be strong and courageous. My brothers and sisters, my friends, the season of spring is on the horizon, a thrill of hope. All oppression shall cease. In a grateful chorus, we will raise sweet hymns of joy. Let our lives and all within us praise the holy name of Jesus. The weary world rejoices. Let's pray. This is a prayer poem that I wrote for you here in youth service at FCBC Walnuts. 
When we're feeling tired from running in this race, you are sovereign over suffering, and God will give us grace. When we're feeling tempted, sin is knocking down the door, you are sovereign over suffering, and Christ keeps us secure. When we're feeling lonely as strangers in this land, you are sovereign over suffering, and we will trust your plans. When we're feeling frightened from evil and from death, you are sovereign over suffering, and you will give us rest. When we're feeling anxious and worried with our needs, you are sovereign over suffering, and God will grant us peace. When we're feeling hopeless and cannot see the light, you are sovereign over suffering, and Christ will make things right. When we're feeling helpless and drowning in the dark, you are sovereign over suffering, and we will not lose heart. And when we're feeling weary and weeping what was lost, you are sovereign over suffering, and joy comes with the dawn.